1: To live a creative life, we must lose our fear of being wrong. That's an anonymous quote. To live a creative life, we must lose our fear of being wrong. Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome you to our Saturday, October 17th. I was just thinking this morning when I was getting ready for today's show, I, like, oh, my gosh, October 17th already. We are already past the mid of October. We're coming down, you guys, the last quarter of 2020. I hope what you set out to do in January the first you didn't let anything happen to deter you. You kept finding a way to get creative, to live a creative life. We must lose our fear of being wrong and when you were wrong to adjust yourselves so you could achieve your goal come year in. And if you if if along the way you just to help pump you up, you want to read a great book. Books they they are so riveting and engaging. You came to the right place because we have an author on deck for you. If you love those mysteries and talking about a mystery, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? You talk about an on-time guest for the day. I always ask you guys, how good of a mystery sleuth are you, and how much do you value relationships? I think that's all life is is relationships relationships at work relationships with your family and even if you don't keep in touch with your family you still have family and had at, at some point a relationship with them relationship with neighbors relationship with people when you go to the store where even if you live out in the middle of nowhere you probably are having a relationship at the very least with yourself at the very least with yourself so life seems i guess all about relationships but do you value relationships and if you do, and you like to see how relationships change, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me. Not only how they change, but how they change you, and how you're impacting others. There's a complicated father-son relationship in the story, and there is a couple, Raymond and Brenda, who truly, truly belong together. But that doesn't mean their road is easy, because Raymond's had he has come through an abusive childhood. His father suffered from alcoholism, but he's he's so bright. And he's on his way to the Olympics. But the, on his way to college, he witnesses a murder mystery. He goes on to build these, this awesome friendship with these four dudes and is one of the guys, one of his best friends involved in this murder mystery. If you like a mystery and you love relationships, don't stop. Go get a copy of Love Pull Over Me right now. You can get an e-book and start reading it today. It's an e-book or in print format. Love Pull Over Me by Denise Turney. And now, let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Elliot Mason. Elliot grew up in Southern California. He graduated from the University of Southern California in 1989 with a bachelor's degree in history. Let's see if he ties that in with his books. And he earned a master's degree from Azusa Pacific University. He has also worked, okay, I'm thinking about Love For Over Me, Raymond Clark Grand Track. He has also worked as a college track and field coach and website developer and manager. In 2013, Elliot switched from coaching to writing full-time. His first book, The Arlington Orders, was released just last year in 2019, and he is working on a second novel or book titled The Legal Killer. Uh-oh. I encourage you to visit Elliot. That is official, uh, official website, is which is Elliot Mason elliotmasonbooks.com, E-L-L-I-O-T-M-A-S-O-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. One more time. E L L I O T M A S O N B O O K S dot com. Elliot with one T. Elliot Mason Books dot com. We are just absolutely honored to have Elliot here with us on Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio this morning. Welcome, Elliot.
0: Hi, good morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you?
1: I am doing fabulous. I'm excited, looking forward to what you're going to share with our global listeners. 16 years in here on Off the Shelf, we've had such fabulous guests, and I'm, I'm, I know they're excited to hear what you're going to share, especially, and I love a mystery. So, But to, the first few questions I'm going to ask you, Elliot, I ask every guest so our listeners get a little backstory on our guests before we start talking about their books. So to kick off today's show, can you tell Off the Shelf listeners, well, they said Southern California, but where you grew up, what city, and what life was like for you growing up?
0: I grew up in a middle-class neighborhood just south of Los Angeles. Uh, uh, it was actually I, I'm kind of a child of the 1970s and 80s. I, I was born in the 60s, but uh, kind of remember most of my childhood being of the 70s and 80s, and. Um, for the most part, I, I was a pretty normal kid. Uh, you know, played baseball, uh, little league. You know, ran around with my friends, tried to uh, try to get into some trouble, but not too much. And uh, uh, but I always uh, in, had a love of history. And um, after kind of soul searching a little bit, after I graduated high school, I I uh, moved on to uh, uh, University of Southern California, where I majored in history and. Uh, Kind of started my love affair with writing um, during those times, uh, my early years in college.
1: So, are you an only so, child, or you got other siblings that you grew up with?
0: I'm a middle child. I have an older and younger sister, so I am the uh, I am the middle kid. And uh, you know, uh, my my older sister uh, is a CPA living up in Los Angeles. My my younger sister is a uh, is a teacher. Uh, just south of LA, so uh, we kind of stayed close to the area that we grew up in. But uh, yeah, I grew up as as the middle kid.
1: Okay. What? So when you, when you you majored in history, when you were a child, what did you what did you dream about being? Did you want to be a history teacher when you grew up? You know,
0: when I was a kid, I I, I remember having dreams of you know I think most a lot of kids had you know a, one time I dreamt of being a a sports star at 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 other times, I thought of other things. but really, by the time I got to college, I was kind of unsure there was a thought of possibly going in uh, to the field of history and maybe uh, teach history at a um, um, one of the dreams I had was maybe becoming a professor at a at a university. but um, it it kind of sidetracked into writing when people started to take notice of my writing. and I for the most part, I I wasn't really quite sure whether I was going to be good enough to, or uh, uh, an accomplished enough writer to actually uh, venture into writing novels. But uh, so when I I was growing up, the the idea of becoming a a writer was kind of foreign to me uh, just from the standpoint I was unsure of myself. And uh, it wasn't until later that I gained the confidence more and more in my skills when I started writing for blogs and magazines and things of that nature.
1: You went from history to track coach to coach and track, and I definitely got to ask you a few questions about track. But so it sort of organically came from the blogging, et cetera. Is that what really inspired your birth of books, or did somebody read to you when you were a kid? What really attracted you to books themselves? And, I think, and I'm speaking more about fictional books.
0: Okay, well, uh, I think for the most part, just um, because of my love of history, I was attracted to books that were historical fiction. So I remember reading books that had a history element. uh, Growing up, of course, Call of the Wild by Jack London was a book that I read as a kid, and uh, having I I loved that book. I loved reading about uh, you know the exploring the exploration of the uh, of the of Alaska and. Uh, the Pacific Northwest, those type of things. So, I was kind of gravitated, or uh, I was kind of gravitated to those books. And then, um, you know, I, I also had a love for uh, movies that had kind of a historical fiction edge to them, like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Was you know, when I was growing up, I, that came out when I, the first one came out when I was uh, in junior high school. And I remember just being mesmerized by this fantasy. And I remember reading fictional scripts, if I could get my hands on them a lot of times. Uh, I, I got the script for Raiders of the Lost Ark and read it um, as almost like as a fictional story. So um, I, those were kind of my inspirations when I was growing up, looking at these um, very, very uh, uh, interesting parts of of, of of ways of looking at history. And uh, so that was kind of my gravitational Poll as it came to a fictional stories.
1: So for our listeners here who might think, you know, if you don't know what you want to do by the time you're in your 20s, some people, you know, it's almost as if, what do you, what do you want to do? You ask kids, I, and I ask my nephew. He's like, I don't know. He's 13. Or you, you, you're, for yourself, you think, what am I going to major in in college? And I've got to know now what I want to do with the rest of my life. And some people do know, and some people. Or in their 50s, and like, I still ain't figured it out. But for those who might think, oh, it's too late for me. It's too late for me because I don't know what I want to do, and it's just too late. How old were you? Maybe this will inspire or encourage someone. How old were you when you knew that you wanted to be a novelist?
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> I was in my mid-40s. I I um I had... I had, you know, been writing, you know, for, like I said, for trade magazines, blogs, websites, those things. But, and people had approached me over the years about possibly uh, writing a novel, but the idea was kind of terrifying for me at the, at the time. And of course, you've probably heard people come up, you know, uh, to other writers and say, oh, you're you're such a good writer, you ought to write a, a book. And the first thought is, okay, great, about what? How do I come up with some type of Fictional story, you know, off the top of my head. It's a very intimidating thing. But I really didn't become, uh, I guess, focused on the possibility of becoming a, a novelist until I was in my mid 40s. So it, it was rather, I guess, as authors go late, later in life.
1: <laughs> you know what? I hope that inspires somebody. And not just if somebody listening to Off the Shelf wants to be a, a writer, but they may, they may want to just do a, a career switch. And and just like, you know, with the a, 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 a coronavirus, some people are just, or COVID-19, some people are just saying, I, using this time for good, not everybody's looking at it from a negative aspect, just, I'm going to make a shift. It's something I know, I wanna, I've been wanting to make a change for years, I'm going to make it. It's just good to hear people say... I'm a, I was in my forties or fifties or sixties, and I went back to college or I did something else, and I couldn't have, I couldn't be any happier. But before we go into, I gotta ask you just a few questions because I ran track, I ran cross country, <laughs> and, and the star of Left Pole, with me, Raymond Clark, is a he's on his way to the Olympics, middle distance, uh, eight hundred meters. I mean, I gotta ask okay. this: What is it like? I've, I've never been like a coach at all. What's it like mm-hmm. coaching a track and field team? When I was researching your interview, Elliot, and I saw that I was like, "Wow, what is that experience like?" It
0: was fantastic. Um, I, I I coached at the collegiate level and working with uh, young uh, athletes, uh, young men and women. That age is really kind of a, um, I think, a special time just because they are they're still kind of kids, but at the same time they're uh, they 're moving into adulthood uh, both um, mentally socially physically and um, it, it's it 's just an exciting time i i I loved the excitement of it I loved uh the camaraderie of, of working with other coaches uh, It can be tiring though um, I think a lot of people they get their ideas of of coaches by watching you know the maybe they're watching a football game on Saturday, and a lot of people get this impression that the coach shows up on Saturday and just coaches the game. Uh, I often said that coaching, the actual physical act of coaching, was the easiest part of my job, you know, and it represented maybe about 10% of what I actually did. The other 90% is recruiting and compliance and fundraising and uh, travel schedules. It, it's just a, it's an absolute siege. And uh, recruiting is the bulk of it, where you spend probably you know every night on the phone till 10 o'clock at night talking to athletes. So it is a wow. um, it's very it's very competitive, but it uh, it is a wonderful time. That was I I really enjoyed it.
1: That thank you. That was very insightful. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought you just <laughs> you coach you go you, you you do you put together the practices. You coach them, and then you go to the game, and you motivate, and that's what I would have thought most of it was. Now, so oh, did you? And did you coach a whole team, or did you just do the sprinters and the or the distance runners? Like I like.
0: I coached. I'm sorry. I, I coached cross country, and uh, I was the head cross country coach and head distance coach. So in track and field, I coached everything from 800 meters all the way up to 10,000 meters, and then of course uh, both the uh, cross country teams, men's and women's cross country.
1: Wow, you got me impressed. So this, again, for our off-the-shelf listeners, something that can maybe help them. The the one question I asked you, how were you when you wanted to be a writer, and this next one before we start talking about uh, the Arlington Orders. Now, it's not always easy to shift a lot of us all around the globe are having to shift and people don't like it. We, we we say sometimes we're bored with our lives, the rut, the routine, but we, we always create routines and patterns and don't like when they get shaken. And so it's not always easy to shift careers or any change. Can you offer a few insights, because you've done it successfully, can you offer a few insights on how you made the shift from coaching to novel writing? Well,
0: you know, it wasn't uh the switch was a gradual one for me actually. Um and uh, I think a lo- you know, now that you know you mentioned you know in the middle of a pandemic a lot of times people are kind of forced to shift just because of the circumstances. But uh, for me it was kind of um I was I was burned out on my on my other career. I wasn't uh, I realized that I was not approaching my uh, my My coaching career with the same vigor I once did, and when I realized that, I realized that if that unless I had a hundred percent effort in it or a hundred percent of my heart into it that um, that maybe it was time to to consider switching and that was kind of the impetus for me to kind of uh, to to begin to move over from doing that into a full time writing career i I think that it um, it was more of a self-reflection, uh, just kind of saying, wow, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, and, uh, you know, I, I've accomplished what I've wanted to accomplish in that field, and I'm just not, I'm not getting the same level of satisfaction out of it I once did. And then on top of it, it was just taking an enormous amount of time away from my uh, my family and my friends, and, and uh, you're always gone, weekends, and so it was kind of a, Kind of a gradual realization through self-reflection that made me want to move into a different field, and that was kind of how I gradually moved over from uh from writing blogs into this idea that, hey, maybe I, I can actually tackle this this whole goal of writing a book that i have been thinking about, but uh, was too nervous to take on
1: <laughs> how did you How did you get the courage i 'm just how I, That is such a huge shift to me. How did you get the courage, though, to just, you've never written a novel, to just Mm -hmm. take that launch? Did you just, were you writing and coaching, and then you started selling more and more books, and then you just said, you know what, I'm going to go after it all the way? I
0: I think it was the encouragement of, of mainly family who kept on saying, you know, you've been talking about this, we believe you can do it. My biggest impediment for me was, Basically, lack of confidence. I was really nervous. I mean, it's one thing to write for, a, let's say, a trade magazine where you're given a subject matter and you're told, okay, we want you to write an article about this. We want you to write a blog about that. That's easy for me because it's, it's a directed writing. You're given the subject and you're told, and it's more done from an analytical uh, type of uh, standpoint. But the idea of coming up with this original story Terrified me, and I think what really gradually pushed me into it was was family who who basically said, you know, we believe that you can do this. This is something that we have confidence that you are capable of doing. Why don't you finally take a stab at it? And uh, it, that that would probably be the biggest influence that to say, okay, it's time. I was ready to move on, and uh, I just needed some, I guess, extra love and encouragement from those close to me to to actually uh, to take the step, to take the leap, and that's kind of how it came about.
1: Awesome. Awesome, Elliot. So can you give off-the-shelf listeners an overview of your first book, The Arlington Orders?
0: Of course. Um, the book, The Arlington Orders, the actual uh, impetus of the book or the start of the book is based on a real-life event called the Dahlgren Affair. Um, most people are not familiar with the Dahlgren Affair. It was a little-known event that happened – during the Civil War. There was a young Union colonel, his name was Alrick Dahlgren. He was 21 years old, just basically a kid, who uh, in March of 1864 was killed in a Confederate ambush about six miles outside the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, When the Confederates searched his body, they found a set of orders on him. And the set of orders basically said, you are to kill President Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy you are to kill everybody in the Confederate government and you are to burn Richmond to the ground. And at the time, this was a very shocking um, event because, and it was well publicized throughout the South because at that time there was kind of a a gentleman's agreement between the two sides that uh, civilian heads of state would not be targeted. So the North wouldn't target Jefferson Davis and anybody in the uh, Confederate government. And likewise, uh, the South wouldn't target Lincoln or anybody in the, uh, in the Union government. So it was um, this gentleman's agreement that had seemed to have been broken. Uh, there's a lot of controversy on whether who gave that order, because until uh, this day, no one does. But because of that uh, incident and because the war was not going well for the South, they decided to evacuate the capital of Richmond, Virginia. The problem was not getting the people out. That was fairly simple. The hard part was they had all of their gold and silver reserves in Richmond, and which was the money they used to basically run the war effort. So what they decided to do was to implement a secret operation, and this was to covertly move all the gold and silver down to the port in Savannah, Georgia, where they would sail it out of Savannah to an undisclosed location, and then they would draw on the money when they needed it. Well, they actually implemented this covert operation, And during the transfer, it disappeared without a trace. And to this day, no one knows what happened to it. It's one of the great mysteries of the the Civil War. So I took that story, and I have characters who, you know, people who stumble upon clues in modern times, and it becomes this deadly chase where uh, not only could uh, it – where they're searching for this treasure where the implications of the treasure could change the very future of the country. So it, it's this deadly chase that touches upon a lot of the circumstances and events that we're dealing with now in modern times. So that's kind of how the story un- unravels.
1: Oh my goodness! <laughs> and I never heard of that. See, you majored in history. When you majored in history, mm-hmm. just like I saw a movie yesterday based on a real life story about a woman. When I can't, I, I can't think of the name of it. Uh, she hired an attorney to when her family they were Jewish. Living in Austria, they just and the Nazis came, took all their stuff, she got back a family portrait that was well over worth a hundred million dollars, but it took her sixty eight years to get it back but still that that history when you hear these history stories, this is what you love about history, and this is why what you writing these historic novels is so intriguing now how much the Arlington orders, how much of the book do you keep to real real-life events?
0: A lot of it. Um, that To me, historical fiction works best when you are actually using real history and uh, historical events and items and even people to uh, tell the story. Now, the main characters of the story are fictional. There are four main characters that are fictional, but the events they talk about, the locations they go to, even some of the restaurants they stop at, and there's a couple scenes where they're in restaurants, are actual real places. So I try to use, um, I try to make the, the book feel as relevant and real as possible by actually using real history. I talk quite a bit about uh, characters such as Thomas, Je- or you know, real historical figures such as Thomas Jefferson. Uh, you know, uh, we talk about, uh, touch upon obviously Abraham Lincoln, some of the Confederate people that we know well, Robert E. Lee. Uh, all of these things that um, that are were well, pretty well known in terms of who they were. I try to tie in. So quite a bit.
1: You, you, okay, I got to ask you this. This wasn't a question I was going to ask you How long? How much time did you spend just researching? We've had authors on, and they and their books have, have sold well. There are people. There's an, a niche for that historic the historic. Fiction and they tell me they've researched we have one on she wrote something about a a, a a a the last i forget what it was in russia and and the research you have to do because the, this is what his people who write historical fiction tell me there are readers who know that fiction like the back of their hand, and they will tell you oh they didn't use they didn't have those type of napkins back then, or that mm-hmm. diner didn't 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 they didn't use those types of cups they are that they didn't have that type of silverware back then. They're that specific. Right. So, how much time, like researching this, did you spend, like months and months, before you just sat down and started writing the Arlington Orders?
0: Um, I would take. I would write down notes, but before I actually started constructing the story, it was about two years of research. I, wow. Uh, I'm. I was kind of doing it simultaneously, so I can't say that I that I you know researched first and then went to the book, but. Um, I researched a great deal. It was at least two years of research, and it was, uh, and even as a history major, I learned a lot. Uh, one of the one of the cool things about history is that you know I don't care how much you think you know about it. You could be, a, you know, have a doctorate, you know, in in the field. There's always something new to learn, and yes, uh, I, I learned so much even even from events that I thought I knew well previously. I learned quite a bit. So yeah, it was it was. Very, very detailed amount of history that I had to study and learn and, and uh, get into some of the backstories of some of these historical figures that I thought I knew so well but learned something completely different from, uh, about them.
1: Now, can you introduce us to just in, in, his personality, uh, his, his drives, his his weaknesses, his strengths? Can you introduce us to the Confederate president? Jefferson Davis, again, what's he like, his personality, and is his personality, did you keep it close to what the real Jefferson Davis was like?
0: Um, I I try to keep it as close as I can. Jefferson Davis makes an appearance mainly in the the beginning of the story. Um, Jefferson Davis was a religious man. He was uh, sometimes prone to uh, being very nervous but he was a true believer in his cause, and he saw um, the way he viewed the North was in his in his mind. He viewed the North as overbearing; that they basically, it, for almost to the sense where he felt that the North wanted to uh, to basically enslave the entire South, is how he saw it. So he was he was a very uh, um, interesting man. He was very intelligent, but he was also and very organized. But he was also very nervous and could get very emotional. He was prone to sometimes going into um, emotional. I, I guess it wouldn't be rage, but almost fits that I, that I felt would sometimes cloud his judgment. So he was very. He was kind of a, a an interesting character. Um, he and mainly he he appears uh, because the event, the Dahlgren affair. Appears towards the beginning of the book. He, um, his appearance is mainly during that part of the story. But that's kind of the the man he was. He was uh, he was also very. Uh, he 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 could never come to terms even after the South lost the war. He could never come to terms that the Confederacy was was over. In his mind, it never really ended.
1: Ah, uh, so, now can you tell us how Des Cook and Madison Callum, uh, and if you could just enter first of all, if you could introduce us to... Well, no, let me ask you this question first. Can you tell us how Des Cook and Madison Callum, how did they stumble upon clues about the hidden golden and silver treasure?
0: Okay, well, uh, Des Cook is a, uh, is a person who is getting his master's degree at the University of Georgia in history. He's, uh, he's kind of an uh, interesting guy. He is very, very uh, much into puzzles and He always enjoyed learning kind of these little tidbit side notes of history, which would kind of follow what the Dahlgren affair would be. And he is volunteering at the Savannah Historical Foundation while he's working on his master's uh, uh, thesis. And there's a young woman. Her name is Madison Callum, who uh, is a part-time professor at Savannah State University. And she is also volunteering there, and they meet. And... uh, Des Cook, uh, what they're doing is they are working on something that goes on quite a bit with historical foundations where they digitize historical documents and then put them on the Internet for, you know, researchers to look at and study. And this is something that goes on quite often. And so they're involved in this project where they're digitizing old photographs and documents, and, and Des comes across this picture where – it's this old, you know, it's a, a daguerreotype, which is the old tin type of photograph. And as he's, uh, he wants to scan the photograph, so he has to remove the picture from the frame. And when he removes the picture, uh, 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 basically a, a piece of parchment comes out with a set of cryptic clues. Uh, oh, that my he goodness. Believes in, uh, and he's not really sure if it, what it is, he, but he believes it might be related to that. And he and Madison, that's how they get started on it.
1: Oh, uh see this is what I love about off the shelf when you you know as a as a book lover and a and an author, I like to look at the book cover and read the first few pages of a book and and the 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 summary the synopsis really doesn't pull me it's the first few pages and um, I don't pay attention often to book reviews at all but That's what pulls me, but when when, when authors talk on, like, off the shelf about their books, answering questions, that's when I really get, like, I got to get that book. That's (laughs) when I really get super excited to hear the author talk about more of the inner workings of the story. So, now, it's 150 years after the Civil War. The entire country has changed. How on earth can, how, how can Beth and Madison go back and unearth these treasures? I mean, 150 years later, why would they even bother? Well,
0: I think for, for them, for Des and Madison personally, the way they're kind of two lost souls. Uh, they bo- both of them are kind of dissatisfied with how their life has turned out. Uh, Dez feels that he should have been further along. He's a, he's, he spent time in the military, and then after he got out, he decided to go back to school. But he really doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. Madison – is a recent divorcee who uh, from, uh, came from Nashville and, and, went and kind of wanted to start over again. But both of them are kind of dissatisfied where they are in their life. And that's one of the things that they run into, too, Of some of the doubts. Some of the doubts they have is, wow, okay, these clues are directing us to certain areas. First, we have to you know kind of decode them. But once we decode them, Will these areas even still be around, you know, 150 years later? And something they fear that um, that may not happen. But their treasure to them represents kind of a, a way of giving their meaningless lives or their directionless lives direction. It gives gives them something to hold on to. It's almost a um, something it represents that their lives have uh, more value. And, and their existence has value. So for them, it's kind of a, uh, an adventure. The other two characters, it's completely different. The motivation is completely different. And it's not until Des and Madison get further along in the search that they realize that what they're looking for is extremely important and that it could, uh, it could not only result in changing the country, but it could result in their death. So it's very, uh, it, it, it kind of uh, takes them from one extreme to the next.
1: So they're they okay. So I want, if you could just tell us a little bit more about Des. You said he feels he feels lost, but what his personality is like? Is he a loner? Does he live alone? Is he, is he married, divorced, et cetera? But before you do that, it, it sounds like they just they 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 stumble upon this or or Des just falls out of this book of parchment, and he it's just like a whim. It's like. Almost, if 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 something fell out, any off the shelf listener, they're in a library. Something falls out, and they just are curious. And it says one, two, three, Huff Street, and they say, you know what? I just want to drive by there and see what that place looks like. And you get there, then there's another clue. And <laughs> It's like before you know right. it, and and you just it starts with just almost a, a casual, I'm just curious, and it goes deeper. But be, before we talk a little bit more about the the Arlington boys. Can you just describe Des a little bit more? Uh, what what is he like, and what has his life been like up until this this point where he has this discovery?
0: Well, Des has uh, you know uh, has had a very hard life, and from the standpoint, his father dies when he's young, so he uh, he uh, and his mother doesn't have a lot of money, so he kind of is helping the family by working at a very young age. And, uh, but he's always frustrated because he's very bright, but he can never seem to move on with his life because he doesn't have the financial means to do so. And he always dreamed of going to a university. And he wants to make sure that his mother's okay. So he eventually joins uh, the military. And um, in the military, he's sent to Afghanistan, where he has a very traumatic experience. Um, and I'm not really giving away much of the story, but during uh, his time in Afghanistan, he's involved in a firefight, and he accidentally kills a child, and this haunts uh, him. He, yeah, he's, he's very haunted by it. He suffers from uh, post tra- uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. He is, uh, has uh, anxiety attacks, and so um, it, for him, he's, he's got his own kind of uh,
1: you
0: know, d- inner demons that he's dealing with and uh, he, you know, when he comes back to uh, the States after his time in, uh, in the Army is over, uh, he goes back uh, to school, but he always kind of feels out of place because not only has he had these this horrible experience, but he's also older than a lot of, you know, his classmates, and here he is in his late 20s, early 30s, and most of the, uh, the students in his classes are, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, so he feels out of place. He hasn't had any significant uh, uh, romantic involvement with anybody in, in quite some time because uh, he just has not been able to kind of reconnect with himself. And uh, and that's kind of what this treasure in some senses represents as well. So he, he's, Des, but Des also has kind of a naivete about him. Uh, he, he believes in certain things that oftentimes he finds out later are proven to be untrue and that also has a very um, negative impact or a hard impact on him. So he's he's a um, he's far from perfect. That's for certain. <laughs> he's a very uh, and that's why I wrote when I wrote him. I think a lot of books that tend to do these type of things. The main characters are these you know uh, superheroes almost. They they you know are spies or assassins. Uh, I always was fascinated by what would happen to someone who's just a regular person who who has never really done anything of that type of significance, and all of a sudden they're thrown into this very unusual situation.
1: Is, so he, that's a gentle, who he, represents. is he gentle? Is he gentle? Is he gentle? Is he like a violent kind of aggressive? He's, I'm, he, I, he comes across as a gentle guy, like he wouldn't be somebody who'd start a fight or be violent. Is he Is he either one of those?
0: He's very gentle. He uh, is violence is uh, completely revolting to him. You know, he he experienced so much of it in Afghanistan while he was in the military that he he tries to you know to avoid violence like the plague. He just doesn't want any part of it because he felt that he's seen enough in his life to last a hundred lifetimes. And he just he really is a very gentle, very uh, he's a very caring person, but he's also a very naive person in a lot of ways, and uh, that personality a little bit.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that naivety is, is not gonna. It, that could hurt you on the, this kind of search. Can you tell us a little bit more, off the shelf listeners, about Miss Madison? Uh, uh, what's she like? How does she, how she's from Nashville? Can you give tell us a little bit more about her? Her strengths, her weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that I help the, the listeners keep turning those pages to see what she's going to get caught up in next.
0: Okay. Well, Madison uh, grew up in Nashville, and she uh, was kind of the awkward, shy girl growing up. Uh, uh, she was uh, skinny uh, with braces. Uh, she was the object of ridicule with uh, a lot of her friends. Um, she, or a lot of not her friends, but her her classmates. Um, and she, you know, was kind of a bookworm, kind of very, kind of a nerdy character. And uh, but she was also very naive. And when she went away to college, she met uh, a young man who uh, she became instantly enthralled with. And plus, she kind of went through a physical metamorphosis where she kind of outgrew that awkwardness and was actually a, a became a very attractive young woman. Uh, but she, because she had so much naivete in the dating world, she basically gravitated. To the first um, To the first guy that showed her any attention, and she ends up marrying this individual who uh, goes on and is not a very good husband he, um, he uh, cheats on her she catches him in numerous affairs and finally the last draw was when she caught him in another one and she decides to get up and leave um, and move to Savannah Georgia her her idea was she, she was always at the top of her class but she always seemed to lose out on getting the jobs that she desired. She just wasn't coming through for her. And she felt uh, by the time she gets to Savannah, Georgia, she's in some sense is feeling a little sorry for herself. And uh, she doesn't know what she's going to do. She's, again, she only has a part-time gig at uh, Savannah State. She also works as a part-time as a hostess in a restaurant and uh, really has no clue about how she's going to start over. She feels that she uh, is quickly losing her prime years and, and still not accomplishing what she wanted to accomplish. Um, she feels foolish because she felt that her good years were given away in a failed marriage. And um, she uh, gets on the phone one day and her mother kind of chastises her, you know, about stop feeling sorry for yourself and find a purpose. So she goes out and she uh, volunteers at the Savannah Historical Foundation, and that's where she meets Dez, and the two kind of strike up a friendship, <laughs> flirtatiously, yeah, but but they're cautious too. So that's kind of how they meet.
1: How, so when they meet, how old is Dez and how old is Madison when they meet?
0: They're both in their early thirties. Um, uh, oh, you know, they're they're, both-
1: so to me, to me, they're young. I'm thinking they're like forties, 50s. fifties. They're young to me. They're in yeah, okay
0: me too <laughs> yeah, okay. I' my fifties now but uh, yeah they they are very um they they're in their early thirties but they they just feel like they they have um that they just haven't accomplished much and uh th- th- this kind of gives their direction of life direction basically uh they um there is a lot of flirtation going on between the two you know you can feel some sexual tension there but they are, uh, but they're very cautious. They're worried about, you know, how their past might interfere with any type of relationship in the future. So you can feel it kind of on the surface a little bit, but you don't want to, uh, or below the surface a little bit, but, you, but they don't really carry on uh, further, and uh, you kind of see their relationship develop as the story goes on.
1: Oh my goodness! What you got layers in this story? It just sounds so, yeah. just so entertaining. Tell us about some of the places that, without giving us this, this, uh, the Arlington orders, without giving the story away, tell us about some of the places that Des and Madison visit as they search for the treasure. Oh, and I also wanted to ask you, who is the one who comes up with the idea for the two of them to join forces and go search for this treasure? Was one of them reluctant? Was the other one, like, pushing, like, yeah, 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 we should do this? And whose idea was it really to go in search of the treasure?
0: Okay. Well, uh, you want me to answer the first part of the question first, the, uh, where the locations of the second part? Okay. Um, the, first, the first part, they go quite – most of the story, actually, in Virginia, uh, that's where most locations – they do have a location uh, in South Carolina that they go to at the very beginning of the story. Um, uh, there, there's a place called Old Sheldon Church, a beautiful old relic of a church. It's actually just a burned out relic now. It's just, uh, the only thing left are the brick arches of the church. But a lot of the book takes place in Virginia, and so you're going to see uh, places like Williamsburg, Virginia. You're going to uh, you're going to see, of course, the the title of the book, Arlington Orders. Um, Arlington is uh, uh, central to the book because uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but before um, the Arlington orders, uh, Arlington, Virginia, we all know Arlington National Cemetery, but before uh, it became a cemetery, it was actually a private residence. The private residence was uh, owned by George Washington's great-granddaughter, and uh, she married a young, dashing Union colonel, in, in the 1840s, whose name was Robert E. Lee. <laughs> Robert E. Lee was uh, her second cousin, and they married. And they actually lived on the property and owned that house. But when Robert E. Lee decided to leave, um, leave the, uh, the Union and join the Confederacy, the Union government confiscated the house and took control of it and then started burying Union war debt on the property as a way of kind of cursing the Lee family, and that's how you get Arlington National Cemetery today. So Arlington is uh, – it was also the Union headquarters during the war. So Lincoln would be at Arlington House and Arlington – what is today Arlington National Cemetery. He he would be there often receiving communications about the war, talking to his staff, talking to generals. He was very involved over that place. But uh, – so, yeah, most of the book takes place. There are some parts that go into Washington – DC, but I would say the, the probably 90% of the locations are in um, are in uh, Virginia. In terms of uh, what motivates them, uh, really, when they first saw it, Des was the one who kind of recognized the possible significance of that uh, cryptic uh, parchment that came out of uh, the uh, back of the frame. He he, but he's not quite sure. Madison, who's, who's interested in history, she, uh, she is a, a majors in African-American uh, studies at Savannah State. That's her, the field she teaches. And she, uh, her expertise is later on. So she kind of relies on Des. But again, what really drives them is the sense of my life is not where it should be. I'm not happy with where I am. What can I do to change it? And this kind of represents. You know, this, so it's really kind of both their ideas, but I, I would say Des is kind of one that drives what the possibilities of that, of that note might lead to, and that's kind of where uh, they are um, – that kind of leads to their motivation throughout the story until they, it kind of is something where they bit off more than they can chew.
1: Oh my God, you are really kicking my interest. I mean just can imagine the <laughs> listeners now. do do Daz do and Madison they I mean, it sounds like they're they're very innocent about this. They're just thinking probably thinking nobody else even knows. It's been hundred and fifty years. And they I mean, it's just amazing. This sounds like it should be made into a movie. Do Daz and <laughs> Madison do they do they receive help along the way? I mean, I don't want you to give the story away but is, is, is they're going to get in some tight spots if other people are aware. Do they get some help uh, along the way?
0: Well, they think they do. It's actually quite the contrary. Um, they do not realize anyone else is looking for it. The, the two other uh, characters in the story, uh, main characters, one is, is simply called the judge. He's a federal judge who um, has always envisioned himself doing something great, even though he's You know, it seems like he's accomplished a lot professionally. He envisions the uh, uh, he envisions himself as somebody to be spoken on the tongues of, of people when they talk about great discoverers or great people in history. So, and plus, it's monetary wealth. If it were discovered today, it would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So, he has always envisioned himself accomplishing this, and he's after it. He teams up with a young. Uh, kid who's about 23 years old, 24 years old, uh, whose name is William Hatton. And his great-great-grandfather served as a courier to General Lee during the war. And he believes that his great-grandfather was involved in the operation to covertly move the treasury out of uh, Richmond, Virginia, down to Savannah, Georgia. And he's always believed it. But he never talks about the treasure's value in terms of its monetary value he only talks about its intended use. He's always referring to the treasure's intended use, and no one knows what he's talking about until you get to the end of the story. Um, the, he and the judge team up and basically are, uh, are in, in a sense, competing, and, and they're not afraid to use violence, and they're not afraid to do whatever it takes to get to this treasure before, uh, before anybody else does. And so... Mads and Dez are kind of innocently searching around, and all of a sudden they find themselves the targets of these people who have a lot of money, a lot of resources, and a, um, and a will to use violence, if necessary, to get what they want. So oh it, it becomes kind of this deadly chase.
1: Yeah. you got to get this made into a movie. Now, now <laughs> what effect does Dez and Madison's efforts have on current-day events, if any? Well,
0: it's not so much. I think the effect it has on, on these efforts. It might have some effect when you get to the end of the story. That, but the story, uh, you know, it would have to continue on. But they talk about a lot of the issues that we are currently experiencing today, um, and uh, their viewpoints on history and uh, how uh, how history has shaped us. So there's a lot of um, discussions as they're searching about historical figures, historical events, and how we view them. And um, they're viewing it through the eyes not only of people who are emotionally involved, but they're viewing it through the eyes of people who are actually educated in history and who have studied these people. So their perspectives are, you know, different than a lot of sometimes the, the discourse that goes on today where people are often, you know, driven by other factors, sometimes emotion sometimes political ideology, but they, they approach it from a very cerebral standpoint. And so a lot of the issues that we talk about today, everything from social justice issues to um, uh, federal government and uh, uh, states' rights, all those things are discussed as they're searching for this. So it, ah. it kind of just brings these ideas to light.
1: Now, did you visit – this will be exciting. Did you – I know you said you did about two years. Did you visit any other the places that are mentioned in the Arlington orders? Did you personally go and visit and check them out?
0: Practically all of them. Um, and uh, that uh, – to me, that was a lot of like – I like to – when I read a story, I like the, the author to be very descriptive because I want to feel like I'm at the location that they're talking about. And so I wanted to convey that to my readers, and the best way to do that is to actually uh, physically visit the locations. Ironically, at the time I had visited these locations, I'd been there a couple times, but the second time, um, I wasn't really – I was before I started the idea for the book. I just – I was drawing on my memories of those locations, and, uh, you know, the sounds, the sights, uh, the smells, all the things that I could remember from, from visiting those locations like Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, which I've been to a few times, uh, I, I was trying to capture what it was like to to be there, what you know, just the atmosphere in general. And so I kind of uh, took my experiences in my travels and actually placed them into the story. And that's kind of how. Uh, so I hope I'm hoping that the reader will get that same sense when they read the book that hey, I'm here, I'm actually standing next to Desmond Madison. In this place with them, so I can see everything around me. That type of that type of feel to it.
1: Now, will there be a sequel to the Arlington Orders? Is there a sequel coming?
0: Well, that the Legal Killer, the second book, actually includes some of the characters, so it is a sequel. But the storyline is completely different. And uh, but yeah, there is it. So the Legal Killer does kind of uh, because it does have some of the same characters. The uh, Legal Killer does act as a, I guess you would call it a sequel. However, as I said, uh, the storyline is much, much different. And uh, the book, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, no. I was going to ask you if you could just tell us a little bit about The Legal Killer. I know it's not out yet, but if you could just give us a little overview of that book.
0: Oh, sure. Um, The Legal Killer is uh, basically it's an examination of our federal just, uh, justice system uh, that is uh, looked at through the pursuit of a serial killer. Um, what uh, what ends up happening is um, a, a, there's a, a a murder of a U.S. attorney out in uh, in the Los Angeles area, and um, the uh, serial killer contacts uh, w- one of the main characters and challenges them to find. To go to certain historical locations, and if they don't get there to those historical locations in a given amount of time, another person dies. And so uh, the uh, it's kind of this chase, and as 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 the chase continues, it unravels the kind of the very soiled underbelly of our federal justice system and how it operates. And so you're you're learning about uh, you're learning about the federal justice system through basically this pursuit of this uh, this serial killer who is laying out the bodies in a very specific way uh, for the main characters to uh, discover. And they have to kind of uh, decode what they mean not only uh, in modern times, but also their historical context as well. So it's, uh, but, yeah, that's kind of a sequel to the story, yes.
1: And some of the characters in the Arlington Orders are in the legal, you said? They're in this book as well, yes. a few of them? So do we see Daz and yep. Madison again? Oh, I do it? you want me to give that away? <laughs> no, no, okay, don't tell, don't tell. Big, 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 big surprise. Who who drew the illustration as we come down to the last we got less than seven minutes? Who drew the illustration for um the Arlington Order? That was great artwork. Who 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 did that illustration for the book?
0: That was actually done through my publisher who uh, has a a, a a series of artists i I actually never met the artist, and I would love to because I thought they did a marvelous job um, but um the the idea for the cover they basically asked me what are your visions for the cover? what are your visions for what it would look like and um, I kind of said, well you know Arleton and and i when you think of Arlington, you always think of – to me, when I think of Arlington, I always think of those tombstones because they're so iconic. Um, and so when I gave my publisher, they basically gave it to one of their artists who designed it. So unfortunately, I've never met the illustrator. Whoever it is, they did a marvelous job. Uh, and then I said, well, I need something. A lot of people, you know, especially now when there's so much controversy about, you know, representations of anything confederate uh you know how do i represent that this is you know the background of the story and so i said okay we need you know let's place the flag over uh one of the one of what looks like almost like a crate or a coffin and so uh they said well we will come up with some ideas and they basically on the first sample just absolutely nailed it and i was i was thrilled because i think it does a uh a good job conveying the idea of the story um and at the same time do it in a way that um um peaks you know uh peaks people's interest what is this all about and it it's uh i've gotten quite a bit of i've gotten quite a bit of comments on, on the on the cover and uh which is great which is what you want to look for you you hope it grabs people's attention
1: yeah now what have readers been saying about the book itself the Arlington orders. What type of feedback have you been getting?
0: Uh, the interesting thing is the feedback. When most people hear it, most people when I describe the book, they they see it as kind of this, uh, almost like the movie National Treasure, which is you know you know a famous movie with Nicolas Cage. But what the feedback I generally get was, wow, this book is a lot darker, and the ending completely shocked me. Uh, that's the feedback ah. I get most of the time. That I was not expecting that ending, and this was not National Treasure. They emphatically say that because uh, they said this was way darker, uh, this was um, way scarier, and it was. Um, and it, the other uh, feedback I get is that it got them thinking about some of the issues, especially the ending and how it relates to some of the issues we have going on today. Um, they were completely. Uh, they were completely surprised because there's really, when you get towards the end of the book, and I'm not going to give away the surprises, there's really two or three surprises that happened that they were completely not expecting, and uh, that's kind of uh, what people remember most about the book.
1: Can you share, we've got a, a little over three minutes, can you share three to four steps you've taken to be effective at getting the word out about the Arlington Orders?
0: Well, uh, sure. Uh, The first step I took basically was um, I really recognized that I was not very good at social media. It's not my forte. So I actually hired someone who was. And I started – I've always believed, uh, even in my previous career, when someone knows more about something than than you do, use their knowledge. So I um, hired a company called Keen Social. Uh, There's a guy, his name is Estevan Gomez, great guy who – has really done a marvelous job with uh, my website, has done a marvelous job with Instagram and Twitter. And we did a, a, a I don't know if, if you see on my, on my uh, webpage, we actually created video like movie trailers except for a book where we actually hired real actors to play out the personalities of these characters, the four main characters. And so that was something that was a little different. We, we did a, um, a large advertising campaign through social media. Um, the next thing I did was basically I tried to uh, talk to as as many people. I called bookstores. I called um, any type of speaking engagement before the pandemic hit. Uh, any type of speaking engagement I, I'm always willing to go to to, uh, to talk to people, whether it be at book clubs or whether it be in front of large audiences. Um, I also tried to... Um, I try to send out samples to, to people, to friends and family, to get them to talk about it, to get them to maybe pass it around, to, to heighten people's interest. So those are probably the first three steps that I really took. Um, the, the last step, and actually in hindsight, I probably should have done this earlier, is I hired um, uh, Anthony Mora and Anthony Moore Communications, uh, who has done a remarkable job with uh, uh, helping me publicize the book. He, He's forgotten more about marketing a book than I'll ever know. And uh, uh, I've worked with him and um, a couple other people, Grace Kapalian, uh, who, um, who helped me a great deal with getting out the word, um, coming on wonderful programs like yours and talking about it. Uh, I would, my recommendation is just whatever avenue is open to communicate to people, use it and use it as much as possible.
1: Now, where can where can listeners get a copy of the Arlington Orders?
0: They can find. Uh, they can go to Amazon. It's on Amazon, iTunes, Google, uh, Barnes and Noble, Target. They all carry the book. On uh, you can order it online. Uh, if they want more information, uh, you mentioned at the very beginning of the show my website, lamasonbooks.com. I, I have a newsletter. If they would like to sign up for it, where I send out information. Uh, inter- about interviews or upcoming events. Uh, they can also uh, connect directly through my website uh, to, uh, to locations to purchase the book. So oh all my, those, all those ha- are open to them.
1: We Thank you, thank you, Elliot Mason. What a delight. We have had the pleasure of having our feature guest, Elliot Mason. He's the author of the books, The Arlington Orders and The Legal Killer. He's online at elliotmasonbooks.com Mason scom dot com. dot com. Elliot Mason 1TElliottmason.com, The Arlington Orders. If you came in midstream or late on the show, don't no worries. Once it's finished streaming, you can go back and listen to it. It's entirety in the archives and share it with as many people as you like, especially people who love history. Oh, my goodness, I'm not a history buff, but he had me do the whole interview. So, uh, I encourage you to go out and support Elliot Mason, get a copy of the Arlington Orders, and, and, and share the interview with many people. Just, just if you listen to his interview, I, I, how could you not get a copy of the book when you hear him talk about it in two years of research? So, thank you to Elliot Mason. Thank you to all of our off the shelf. Well, listeners, as I always tell you, you are incredible. You are awesome. You are so fabulous. Go out and create an awesome day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Elliot, I'll send you an email when the show finishes streaming. Bye for now.
0: Bye bye. Thank you.